This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and my guest this morning is Dr. David Kerman, co-director of the Israel Institute of New Zealand. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm really delighted to have you along this morning because one of the questions that I have always found a conundrum is why is Israel so misunderstood? <laughs> I wish I, I wish I fully knew the answer to that. Um, it, it would put me out of my volunteer role, and I'd be very pleased about that. To me, there's there's two main drivers for that. The one is, unfortunately, it's a continuation of thousands of years of persecution of Jews. Um, and it just so happens that in the 21st century, those same ideas are projected onto the Jewish state um, rather than individual Jews or synagogues as they were previously. So I think there's a lot of baggage, if you like, um, that has has momentum and carried forward. Uh, and so people are primed to believe the uh, untruths and slurs and slogans. Um, and I think the other reason is that there's concerted efforts uh, around the world and in New Zealand to demonize and delegitimize uh, and apply double standards to Israel for various reasons, uh, one of which is the baggage that I, I just mentioned. I think there's also political reasons that people have, and I think people, some people uh, are just blind to reality and looking for a cause to jump on. So uh, I think there are myriad reasons why there is such a misunderstanding. Um, but anyone who is truly interested and has the ability uh, to, to go and visit Israel uh, will quickly realise that a lot of what is projected onto uh, the nation is is not really true at all. Mm. Uh, it's a thriving liberal democracy. It has its problems, but there are some tremendous technological advances. Um, there is a, a lively culture uh, where Jews and Arabs, for the most part, live wonderfully together, and there is lively debate and there are all sorts of different groups that live harmoniously for the most part, uh, just like any other nation. And you look around the countries that border Israel and, and you don't see nearly the same degree uh, or any degree of freedom. So I, I don't I don't know if I have all the answers, but uh, it certainly is misunderstood. Because I interviewed Naomi Wolf here a few weeks ago, I had a question in regards to the COVID lockdowns and that in Israel. There's so many similarities between Israel and New Zealand in terms of size, the fact that you've got these incredible democracies and a mixture of peoples. And they also took a very strident approach to COVID in the COVID oh, lockdowns. Much more strict than New Zealand, actually. Mm. There, there were periods where Israelis were not allowed to move more than 100 metres from their house. So there I, were some very strict COVID rules. Put yeah, in and I found that really intriguing because knowing a little about the Jewish history, I would have thought as a people that having their freedom curtailed so dramatically would be something that they would be a little bit more vocal about. And when, when probed with that, she was very uncomfortable with the question, but she also then leaned on the Israeli state bad Palestinian good and, you know, referring to the West Bank as an open sort of, I think, an open prison is, is what she referred it to. And I thought, oh, this is interesting that she's gone in that direction. And she felt that, and in her words were, the oppressor became the oppressed. 
I'm not quite sure how that relates to COVID. Um, no, well, exactly. So how's Israel coming out the other side? As you said, they were very, very strident and they, in a way, the incubator and laboratory for the world um, during COVID. So a lot of work and medical work got done there. Are they now coming out and recovering economically or have they seen issues economically like we have here with debt or have they sort of managed to move and trade themselves through it? Uh, embarrassingly, I don't have the numbers to hand, um, but I think the picture is slightly more complicated because not only was there uh, um, intensive COVID uh, reaction, and you know, if we look back at that time, no one knew really how bad things were or what was going on, and um, and Israel took a, a very strong approach, um, not only with lockdown, but as as you alluded to, doing deals with Pfizer to get early access to vaccines and etc. The political situation in Israel has also been. Uh, a bit of a roller coaster ride, uh, to say the least. There have been something like four or five elections in the last four or five years. Uh, and so there's been a lot of internal turmoil added to the mix. Uh, and then there are, of course, the external um, threats that haven't gone away. Recently, there's been, unfortunately, a rise in, in some terror attacks. Uh, a few months ago, there were thousands of rockets once again fired from Gaza. There are some differences as well. But from what I've seen, and I don't have the numbers, unfortunately, to hand to back this up, Israel's kind of back to normal, uh, mm. you know, as normal as it, as it has been. Just yesterday, I was reading that uh, there's been another two cancer breakthroughs at two of the universities. Um, industry is back on track. I think they're open to trade again. They're doing some interesting deals with neighboring countries and are now allowed to fly over Saudi Arabia. So there are some great developments going on all the time. Um, mm. I don't know how much the COVID, and I don't know how easy it would be to isolate that as an effect, has had any kind of lingering, uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure. After effects, yeah, because I mean, we've certainly had the lingering after effects here. So, and with there being so many similarities, what are some of the similarities between New Zealand and Israel that can create opportunities, do you think? You mentioned a whole bunch of them. I think that the, the fact that we're both small countries, uh, Israel is one twelfth the geographic size of New Zealand. So that is about half the size of Canterbury for people to get that in their minds. Um, and not many people know that because when you think about Israel, you think of this massive place. Um, but it's not as tiny. There's about nine, eight, nine million people, so it's double the population. But if you think about it, we're both liberal democracies um, that are essentially islands. So New Zealand's surrounded by water, um, and Israel's surrounded by hostile or <laughs> hostile-ish um, nations. Uh, and so the kind of inventiveness and ingenuity are really stellar. And I think there's some great synergies as well, because New Zealand has remarkable natural resources and Israel has a strongly developed tech infrastructure. And so I think of the deals like CropX, where the engineering and systems approaches of Israeli entrepreneurs have merged with New Zealand agriculture and created a, a, an amazing company um, that's just gone through another $200 million Series B round, um, doing wonderful things to enhance crop growing. As just an example, there's huge synergies that we could exploit. It's a real shame that there's an Israeli embassy in New Zealand, but not a New Zealand embassy in Israel. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you strike with Kiwis? They range from almost the benign, where people think it's a constant war zone and um, to go over, you need to have a flak jacket and, and drive around armoured vehicles. Um, but that's because what's presented in the news is largely when there is conflict. So there's there's that kind of impression. And then there are the more kind of nefarious impressions of this evil, greedy, child-murdering, apartheid kind of country, which, as I said before, any anyone who gets on a, an airplane um, or even kind of reads widely uh, and is interested will find out that it, those are complete 
lies. So I think those are the the broad misunderstandings that people have. Mm. We had a letter that I read out in our feedback last week, and it was someone who had visited Israel early in the year. They had family there, and they said exactly that. They And one of the things she brought up was the whole Israeli-Palestinian relationship. I think one of the tropes that we get fed via media and other organisations is that what happens in Gaza and the West Bank and anyone that's Arab is completely cut off, as you said, in an apartheid situation. And she said that's not the case at all. She said, you know, Palestinians and or Arabs and um, Israelis are living and working alongside each other all the time. So what are, is that one of the biggest misconceptions between that relationship that you encounter? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it, it's fed, of course, by the slogans and, and the propaganda of apartheid state and evil child murderers, etc., um, and all of those kind of demonizations that are leveled at Israel. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's there are borders because there is disputed territory and there is Israel proper. You're also right that plenty of Arabs seek work in Israel. Um, because it's better paid, there are better conditions, the the workers are, uh, have rights <laughs> in the companies and they cross the border every day to go to work and they're very thankful for that and it, it helps provide for their families and they return uh, in the evening. Plenty of, of Arabs do that. There are there was also the great story of SodaStream that had uh, a plant um, in some of the disputed territory and it was easier for Arabs to get to. Um, and they were very proudly on each of the, the bottles would say, made in Israel by Jews and Arabs working together. Um, and it was a wonderful place where the two people could really get to meet and exchange and learn about each other and foster peace. And unfortunately, uh, partly because of activist pressure, uh, the plant had to, to move and make it more difficult. The other really interesting thing on this point is if you look at any of the polling of Arab Palestinians and that ask them, would you prefer to live in Israel or in under the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, over 90% of them say we would much prefer to live in Israel. So you just have to ask Arabs themselves. Don't take my word for it. I just noticed on your website there was a story that's just popped up and it said why supporting the Palestinian state at this time is a bad idea. Explain for our listeners why that is quite a complex situation going on there at the moment. It's an extremely complex situation and that's part of the real sadness for me is it's an extremely complicated, extremely long-standing conflict. And uh, some people outside of the context of that and with little skin in the game uh, decide to paint slogans on things and point fingers at one side uh, and kick up trouble and then think it's a really good idea to support only one side of the conflict in solidarity, they say. And one of the ways that they think is really the best to do that is to uh, acknowledge uh, or recognize the state of Palestine. Now, on the face of it, it seems like a good thing to do. And that's why a lot of people buy into it. But if you scratch a little bit deeper, there's a whole myriad questions that come out. What are the borders going to look like? And this is this is one of the reasons it's such an intractable um, conflict is because on at least five occasions, Israel has said, here's a plan. These are the borders that we can negotiate. We can move some of this land over here and you can have some of that so that we can work things around existing villages or natural phenomena. We want to work with you. And every single time the Arab-Palestinian leadership has said no, not given a counter proposal, and almost every single time there's been an increase in violence. So to think that 
someone outside of that those parties can come along and give the stamp and say this is how it should be is really a colonialist endeavor to draw the lines for uh, the states. But even if you take away that, you say, well, who's going to rule Palestine? Is it going to be Hamas that is currently in charge of the Gaza Strip, which is a designated terrorist organization in many countries, uh, and the military wing of it is a terrorist organization in New Zealand? It doesn't seem very sensible. Or is it going to be Fatah, which is the ruling group of the West Bank? Well, they have seriously low public opinion polls, which is the reason that there haven't been elections since about 2004. So the Palestinian people don't think that Fatah represents them or Hamas to a certain degree. There's corruption that's rife uh, within that organization. So is this a good move to give them citizenship, uh, statehood? It screams of an ignorant virtue signaling. Mm. Um, And I think actually the New Zealand government approach to this particular issue over many, 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 many years has been very consistent and very good. It has been that the New Zealand government supports a negotiated solution to the conflict. And what that means is both sides need to get together and negotiate. And there are it's not just borders and it's not just leadership. Um, there are five main issues that need to be resolved. The problem is, as I mentioned before, every time Israel has said, here's a set of offers. So it's been up to 98% of the West Bank with some land swaps. And every single time the response has been no. With no counteroffer, with no counterproposal, with no other plan of how to go about it, without any sort of real negotiation. Sorry, has there been a reason given for the no? No, the, the kind of face value reason is uh, it's not good enough, basically. the The undercurrent of that is, Uh, We want all of the land from the river to the sea, which is the entirety of Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. But no, there there hasn't really been a thorough reason. Otherwise, there would be a counterproposal. And the kind of the simple explanation is that people who are in power benefit from the status quo. There's no Mm -hmm. way that the Abbas family could have the billions of dollars that they have if they had a real state and had to protect their own borders and their own people and invest in the infrastructure and um, and do things that a, a real state needs to do. Yeah, it pays for them to actually perpetuate the conflict in order to line their own pockets. The other thing that it, it means or would mean is that in some way the Arab-Palestinian leadership would have to recognise Israel and mm. accept that uh, Jews are going to self-determine in part of their indigenous land. That's that really, if you dig far enough down, is the real reason. I mean, the fact that that some of the leaders can line their pockets with billions of dollars um, over the decades is is almost a cherry on the top for them. Mm. Um, but really, the the denial of the right of Jews to self-determine in part of their indigenous land is what underlies really um, the the refusal to negotiate. Um, and as much has been said, uh, so you know, again, don't take my word from it. Uh, listen to Arafat's speech from uh, Johannesburg. Uh, listen to what the leaders say in Arabic, not in English, because they give a different different message to the Western world. This is at, really at the heart of the conflict. And I guess to say then, oh, well, we'll just acknowledge the state doesn't address any of those other issues. It doesn't It doesn't help anyone. In fact, it, it rewards bad behavior. It's a misguided, in, in my strongly held opinion, uh, a very misguided approach to, to the topic. So let's talk about this uh, hate speech petition in schools. And, and that's what actually prompted us to reach out to you. Now, you tabled this to Simon O'Connor. 
what prompted you to actually create the petition to begin with? What was the catalyst? Sure. Well, uh, for a long time, New Zealand has been sending approximately a million dollars a year to an organization called UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Work Agency. It was established uh, just after Israel's War of Independence to look after the Arab-Palestinian refugees at the time. We can get into all sorts of discussions about the whys and wherefores of that, um, but this organization has been around since then, um, and about 60% of their budget goes towards education every single year. Now, their budget last year was $1.6 billion US dollars. Uh, so New Zealand's contribution is approximately 0.06% uh, of what they need to run. We, we're not really keeping them afloat, let's put it that way. But we do contribute and we do politically support the organisation because our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and our foreign minister uh, ministers have always been openly supportive of the work that UNRWA does. Now, for a long time, at least 20 years, there have also been reports that uh, UNRWA is teaching children in its schools to demonise Jews, to glorify terror, and to reject peace. In about 2018, 2019, uh, we started to engage with MFAT to say, did you know that this was going on? Uh, here are publicly available reports going back to 2001 at least. Uh, what's your response to this? Um, and what we got back was uh, a lot of official speak you know, we, we take this very seriously and UNRWA has got mechanisms in place to address this uh, and, and we're going to discuss it with member states and it's all very important. What we learnt from Official Information Act requests is that MFAT officials had never briefed a minister on the issues, even though they've been publicly discussed and reported on. When we presented our report on that issue and other issues with this organisation, including corruption and including hiring people who incite violence online, we got told, that they've got mechanisms to, to take care of all of that. Still, we didn't see anything that briefed a minister. So we started escalating um, and we wrote to the ministers. Uh, minister Peters, I think, was the first one uh, that we contacted and he had a very pro forma response. UNRWA is looking into it. We are confident that it's all being resolved, uh, et cetera. And then we started escalating um, some more. Uh, the Human Rights Commission uh, came on board and expressed concern about this. Um, in 2019, I think it was, the United Nations uh, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, CERD, raised concerns in a report. That's a pretty big deal. The United Nations is criticizing another United Nations organization for teaching kids to glorify terror. Um, and they said that it, it fuels hatred and may incite violence. And so this was bubbling away. And every time we approached MFAT to have a discussion about it or present the evidence that was continually coming out, uh, we were battered away, essentially. Until 2021, so two years ago now, uh, the EU funded a report because there had been international attention now building on this. And their report came out uh, after a lot of backwards and forwards uh, and basically showed what the last 20 years had showed, that there was open glorification of the murder of Jews taught to children in schools. And MFAT's response to that was, oh, we're going to talk to donor nations and uh, we take this very seriously and UNRWA has mechanisms in place, but actually they're using PA produced textbooks and they don't have a way out of that. So that was their excuse at the time. So um, just to clarify, this is schools in the West Bank? Schools in the West Bank and Gaza that are run by UNRWA. Uh, UNRWA also have schools in 
uh, Lebanon and Egypt and and maybe some other places uh, as well. And their tech, the textbooks that they use of the host country uh, in those places are slightly better. But it's really the ones that are in the West Bank and Gaza because those are textbooks that are created by the Palestinian Authority, um, and they are they're terrible. <laughs> they are full of hate um, and incitement. But it gets worse because. But wait, there's in, more. That's right. Don't call now. In in 2020, 21, UNRWA was found to have been producing their own school material. This is with the United Nations stamp of the uh, organization and distributed to all of its students uh, that also glorified terror and incited violence and taught children to hate Jews. And just after that, that was exposed, the MFAT chief executive was asked in a select committee, what's going on? Uh, and he said at the time, I haven't seen anything back from UNRWA that says they are being anything other than significantly serious and looking at this issue and how it came about. So it doesn't matter that there's been 20 years of evidence. It doesn't matter that now they're actually the ones that are producing it. Still, the excuses came. In 2022, UNRWA was still found to be producing even more material that encouraged jihad and violence and glorified martyrdom and murder of Jews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in March this year, another report came out, 25 more examples of UNRWA schools using the hateful content and another 10 teachers who are inciting violence online. It's outrageous. And so we thought, look, we've tried to engage with MFAT. We've tried to talk to the ministers. We've, Simon O'Connor has been marvellous and supportive and he raised questions in the select committee. We've been batted away too many times. The Human Rights Commission isn't respected, obviously, by MFAT or the ministers, not even the UN reports. They don't, they don't seem to care at all. And so what's our next step? We don't have any funding to get high-powered lawyers to do anything crazy, but we thought well, what we can do is a petition. And then at least we, have to, we can table the evidence, we can table it to the committee, and they have to consider it. And we'll see what their response is going to be. But this is just an, an ongoing example of where New Zealand has been supporting financially and politically violence against Jews mm. and glorification of terror and incitement to violence by staff on social media. And it just flies in the face of all of the rhetoric. I'm getting a little bit worked up about this because no other incitement to violence or glorification of terror would be supported by this government. If these schools were praising the Christchurch terrorist or or talking about how it's wonderful to murder Maori or pick any other group other than Well, Jews. even if you just did it, the shoe was on the other foot and Israeli schools were inciting violence against Arabs and Palestinians, they would be all up in arms, I'm sure. There would be no way that our taxpayer money would be going to fund that. Mm. It, would be, it, it would be cut off. And MFAT have told us repeatedly that they don't fund any other hate or incitement or glorification of violence. There's no other evidence of any of that in any of the uh, the, the aid money that they disperse. I have no reason to doubt that. It's just, you know, concerning that there's an exception, apparently, that's made for anti-Jewish hate. I mean, to me, what you've just described is a $1 million virtue signal. Is it, is it because of the UN? Because, I mean, the UN has certainly politically, even though it claims neutrality, there's certain, a lot of elements within the UN which fall out into critical social justice and critical theory, which I have an interest in. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I've always seen Jews, and especially Israeli Jews, are a bit like the meat in the sandwich. 
and it's like an Ouroboros that sort of goes around and eats its own tail. The Jewish and Israelis are sort of stuck in the middle between the far left on one side that will um, use them as a tool for their own political gain and yet turn around and do things like this, because I see that falling from that side, and vice versa, those on the far right who have had a long explained history of anti-Semitism and yet they'll throw you in. The critical theorists will say, well, we're pro-Palestinian and, and not Jewish. And if you fall on the wrong side of our theological fence, you get labeled with one of the labels that many of us get called. Um, and far-right conspiracy theorists, which I think is the most ironic thing to, I have had a Jewish friend and that's what they've been called. And they're like, I'm Jewish. How can you call me a far-right conspiracy theorist? I mean, do you kind of, do you sit there thinking, we can't win, you know, like we, you must feel like the meat in the sandwich sometimes. Uh, definitely the meat in the sandwich, but we have 3000 plus years of winning um, or at least surviving. Um, and so I never think we can't win, but there, there certainly are days where I, I look around and I think the world has gone mad. Uh, and it's not just because of being Jewish and, and these uh, issues it's highlighted here and it's amplified, I think. And, and uh, your point is very well made. The, the simplest way of looking at it is the the far right see Jews as non-white and the far left see Jews as too white. But that's the age old story, right? Jews were too communist uh, in some countries and too socialist in other countries and too democratic in other countries. They were too rich in some countries and they were too poor in other countries. And whatever reason the anti-Semite wants to find, they will find a reason to point the finger, blame the Jew and incite the violence. What gets to me in this example of the schools is it's our government that is funding and supporting violence. I can far better deal with it when it's some crazy, either far right or far left or just insane person that is spouting rubbish or whatever they're doing. But when it comes to you know, the highest offices in our land that are actively sending my tax money mm. and your tax money and our taxes uh, to schools where children are taught to glorify violence. It just makes no sense whatsoever to me. I don't understand it. There's real politic and then there's this. Mm. So where are you at with the petition? Where, I mean, it's been tabled. Have you heard anything more? Or? We have. So the um, it's been tabled uh, and they've asked for a written submission. So we're in the process of putting that together. It's almost ready to go. It'll be ahead of schedule and submitted. And then the petitions committee deliberate um, and there'll be some kind of answer uh, in some kind of form. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, I'll have to. Well, I don't know about you in terms of the current process that we have, particularly with this government. I was talking to uh, Kerry Wusnup, and she is very involved in the rural sector, and she was heavily involved in regards to Haywaka Ekanoa. They've sort of done similar things. They have uh, done presentations to select committee and put all this stuff out there, and I said, well, has there been any impact or any change, or do they actually ever listen? She was just like, no. <laughs> um, so it is, it is very frustrating. I almost feel like sometimes they go through the process because they need to be seen that they're doing the process, but it really matters little at all. Uh, I'm under no illusions that our evidence-based submission and petition is going to change MFAT's decade-long policy. But the other thing that has really disappointed me uh, has been that there doesn't seem to be 
any media interest, mainstream legacy, whatever you want to call it, media interest um, in the story. And again, I cannot fathom there wouldn't be front page headlines if our government was funding schools that praised the Christchurch terrorist. And yet, if you turn it around and say that these schools are glorifying someone who murdered 38 civilian Jews on a bus, including 13 children, they don't care or don't seem to care uh, or for whatever reason, uh, don't want to report on it. I just don't understand that. Again, if these schools were teaching kids to glorify the Christchurch terrorist, I cannot imagine our, our taxpayer money going to it. And I cannot imagine that there wouldn't be a journalist in this country that wouldn't be at least asking questions and writing an article on it. So I did actually write this question down before we do dive over into your other head. Um, has anyone reached out from the disinformation project to make sure that they get information or information that is circulated around Israel is actually correct? No. <laughs> that, <laughs> I did have some communication with Kate Hannah and the response was that that wasn't an area of their particular interest. They had started looking at COVID-19 related disinformation because that's what they were funded for. And they had followed that kind of track. So Israel wasn't part of the remit of what they were looking at. I'm not sure that, that that's necessarily going to change at all. No, no. I know that there is a, currently a, a RFP out, which is a softball, I think, for them to get some more work you know, moving forward and if they do actually continue. Because I can see this being something that continues, you know, that, that there will be certain levels of information where they will categorise it, that this is good, this is bad, if you try to be positive about uh, something that doesn't fit in their neat little boxes, you'll be inst instantly labelled disinformation. Actually, a new term that I saw in the report that they did after the Posey Parker visit was malinformation, which was true information, the truth, but could be used for, you know, malintent. Mm. The truth can hurt sometimes. Yeah, you know? I know. I know. It is. Yeah, I know. I just, I just wondered that. I just wondered whether or not that they'd had uh, have reached out. No, so, no, we, we haven't, um, unfortunately. So the it would be fertile ground, though, as far as I'm concerned. Very much so. So there you go. And to be to be less flippant, um, not only fertile ground insofar as copious amounts of mis and disinformation, but also with real world effects. So we've seen a union leader, Joe Carolan, lead a chant on the streets of Auckland to globalise the Intifada. And for listeners who aren't aware of what the Intifada was, it was essentially violence against Jews periods of time when there were suicide bombings at nightclubs and outside pizza restaurants, horrific violence, um, buses being blown up. And so to have someone in New Zealand who wants to globalise that and bring it here sends shivers down my spine mm. um, and can only in, inflame and incite the sorts of unhinged individuals that might act on that. Mm. The Disinformation Project is, is more than welcome, as far as I'm concerned, to look into uh, the mis and disinformation around the Israel-Palestine conflict. Yeah, and as you said too, this has been going on for 3,000 years, and those that don't read history are often fated to repeat it. So I think many of them, there's a lot of the elements of this ideology I find very fashionable. The fist will go up and they'll do that because they believe that that's fashionable. It's like, do you actually realise what you're supporting? They're not really that interested, I don't think, to be honest. And the Free Speech Union, 
<laughs> yes, change hats, change hats, David. You had some great success earlier in the year around uh, the hate speech legislation. That was it was the first time, honestly, I can remember in ages that actually something worked because there's been so much legislation that has been attempted to be bulldozed through by this government in its current term. And actually, the people spoke and you guys helped magnify and clarify that message and really, I think, had tremendous success in watering down that legislation to a point where it wasn't as draconian as they were hoping it was going to be. For the listeners that aren't aware of that, run us through what happened earlier in the year. (laughs) Thanks, Marie. Uh, I think the long and the short of it is that Free Speech Union has uh, established itself, unfortunately, uh, as a voice for many, 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 many Kiwis who do not want a censorious regime to suppress speech. So I, I joined when it was the coalition back about five and a bit years ago now. It all sprung out of the want of Phil Goff as Auckland mayor to stop two Canadians from talking in the town hall. Also, he tweeted, long story short, when I joined, I thought this is a, a really serious thing because I can see myself as someone in the Jewish community wanting to hold an event and being shut down because people don't like what I have to say. It's not that I agreed with the Canadians. I certainly don't. But what's good for the goose should be good for the gander. Um, and we shouldn't have double standards in our law or in our politics. And so I saw it for that reason and I put my hand up. And what we learned very quickly is there was huge support across New Zealand for the cause. And that took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting that. Um, I wasn't expecting that because generally, I think, you know, we're a pretty live and let live kind of people and uh, each to their own and head down and look after your family and get through the day and, and enjoy life a little bit and not really interested in the political stuff. But this was an issue that I think hit home for a lot of people because just as I saw it, so did thousands of Kiwis and and thousands of them reached into their back pocket and into the couch and and chipped in um, and helped us take the court case. And what we saw earlier this year, to bring it back to your question, mm. uh, is we ran the most successful campaign petition in the history of New Zealand's petitions. There were 20,000 odd signatures of our citizens who said, no, we don't want hate speech uh, legislation in this country. I think that sent a message that was louder than any individual could have ever achieved or any smaller group could have done to say there is a real issue here uh, and you need to reconsider this dear ministers as much as you might want to shut down our speech and you control what we say and see and hear that's not what we want and thankfully on that occasion democracy i think kind of won out now the can has been kicked down the road the law commission is still Uh, going to submit on it and we don't know where it's going to go from here and there are still clearly groups and individuals and people in positions of power who do want to control what you can say and hear unfortunately that just means the free speech union needs to stay in business and we wouldn't have been successful and we won't be able to continue to stay in business if not for our supporters and our members and I think the, the the real kudos, I suppose, and the real reason that there has been success is only because we have a large and supportive membership base. We've seen it with Reality Check Radio. So people are wanting to hear another side of a story because you mentioned it, you alluded it to it before. I mean, all the work that you've done in regards to the petition that you had tabled, not one single media organisation 
was interested in picking it up. To have an effective functioning democracy, you've got to have an effective and functioning media. Right. When the media aren't adhering to elements of free speech, people, I think, they get twitchy and they realise. I mean, what I think the latest trust numbers I saw in the media, um, it's like only 40% or something actually trust the media now. It's, yeah. it's sad. It's really sad. And what's even what's even more depressing is the response of the media is not some self-reflection and, uh, you know, let's sit down and figure out why this is. Maybe it's us. Maybe we should be, you know, not shutting down so many comments and presenting both sides of stories, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the response was basically to say, oh, you're deplorables. Mm. People don't know. They don't understand. Well, it's not true. I have a lot of faith in my fellow citizens. I think most people are generally want to do good, uh, want to be informed, I generally can see the BS for what it is. Um, and and that's that, I think, is really the secret of the Free Speech Union success is we call a spade a spade and we're not afraid to stand up for the rights of everyone to have their voice because it, it, what's good for the goose should be good for the gander. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to, two things I read today that really tickled my fancy. And one was around the press gallery at Parliament. They have changed the rules for accreditation within the press gallery. And you now need to be a member of uh, the New Zealand Media Council, I think, in order to get accreditation. And they've changed that rule. They've changed that rule specifically to prevent Sean Plunkett having his accreditation renewed because obviously asking prime ministers uh, what women are is a little bit too scary. So they've gone and done that. Uh, so I thought that was like, wow. But then, you know, that's how they roll. The second thing I saw was with Wayne Brown. So he did a big press conference. It was invitation only to the media and stuff wasn't invited. Uh, and, they, and they weren't happy about it. And he was quite open and said, well, you're not invited because you won't report accurately. So I'm not going to have you there. I mean, he's a polarizing figure, but he is certainly effective and he's not afraid. I think it's about being fearless now, isn't it? And the Free Speech Union has been pretty fearless on a number of these topics. So well done for that. What are some well, of the things on the horizon that you see? Uh, well, <laughs> unfortunately, and I really mean that, we have a lot of work to do. We're very grateful uh, that we've found Jonathan Ayling and our CEO, who's doing a sterling job uh, of keeping the ship moving. But uh, yesterday we were leaked a report from um, DIA, and there are some very concerning uh, suggestions in there of setting up um, a essentially a sensor for social media or large platforms. We've got a battle on our hands uh, there. Uh, we are. Um, you, you mentioned before the uh, government. Uh, RFP for disinformation work we're putting together with we're contributing to a consortium to try and get some of that work we can have some input and we can try and influence uh, public policy and, and present uh, useful uh, important balancing of free speech with harms from disinformation which we have to acknowledge there can be so there's a whole work stream there uh, and there's one or two other little things that uh, hopefully we can talk about in the not too distant future. Um, yeah. yeah, we have some uh, one in particular uh, very exciting project that um, we're hopefully going to launch this year. Um, so keep your eyes, ears to the ground, eyes open. Oh, fantastic. Now, if anyone needs to find any information, firstly, the Israel Institute, where, where do people 
if they want more information about some of the issues we've discussed this this morning, where do they go to for that? Uh, Israelinstitute.nz. Uh, that's where all of our stuff is is online. I'm very happy to take questions and criticisms and feedback. Uh, Israelinstitute.nz is that one. And if I change my hats uh, very quickly, uh, Free Speech Union is fsu.nz. Those are the two websites. Most of the stuff is up there. Facebook and Twitter, I think, are the social media outlets for each of them as well. We haven't quite yet got a TikTok or an Instagram or a Snapchat or any of the others. Somehow I don't think TikTok's quite your market, <laughs> Pete. Just saying. No, no, no. No, I don't think we're going to go that. Mind you, Facebook I don't know, I don't know David. I mean, you could you could pop pop it. He's got his, we're doing this on Zoom. He's got a Zoom background. You could pop a wee hula skirt on and do a wee dance. There you go. <laughs> that, that will get them excited on TikTok, I'm no, sure. No, 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 no. That, that's for at home when no one else is around. Ah, oh, well, there you go. Hey, look, David, I really want to thank you so much for giving us your time this morning. This is Dr. David Kuman, the co-director of the Israel Institute of New Zealand. Uh, don't disappear here on Counterculture. Still more great stuff to come on Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10am on Reality Check Radio. Reality Check Radio.